This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Good day to you and welcome to America Change Forever. I'm Jeff Begays. We have a ton to cover today. We're going to be talking about the January 6th committee. This is the congressional panel investigating what happened on January 6th. And you all know what happened on January 6th. So I won't uh, bore you with some of those details. But what you should know that's important is this investigation is ongoing in Congress. And this past week, we saw Steve Bannon showing up in court and really making a show out of it. So we're going to talk more about that. We are also going to talk about some of the progress that the Congressional Committee is making as it moves forward with its inquiry, despite not not getting any cooperation from some of the people that it is interested in talking to. But first, before we do that, let's listen to what Steve Bannon had to say on his way in. Everybody watching in the war room, we're here today. I don't want anybody to take their eye off the ball of what we do every day. Okay, we got the Hispanics on our side, African-Americans coming on our side. We're taking down the Biden regime. This is going to be the misdemeanor from hell for Merrick Garland, Nancy Pelosi, and Joe Biden. And we're going to do, we're going to go on the offense. We're tired of playing defense. We're going to go on the offense. All right, so let's get the latest on this congressional investigation with CBS News congressional correspondent, Nicole Killian. Nicole, thanks for being with us. Good to be here. All right, so give us an update on this committee and what it is up to. Uh, What have you learned? So the committee is making a lot of progress. Uh, So far, a committee aide tells CBS News that they've gotten information from nearly 200 witnesses. They've received nearly 25,000 documents. They're following up on more than 200 tips that they've gotten through a tip line that the committee has. And they say they've been talking to a wide range of witnesses, including current and former government officials, individuals who have helped plan, organize, and pay for events around January 6th. They've talked to different experts as well as those uh, who protect the Capitol uh, day in and day out. Uh, so at, at this point, you know, the committee feels that they are winning co- cooperation from a lot of individuals. That being said, there are a number of individuals who have not been cooperating with the probe, namely Steve Bannon, which you mentioned at the top of the show, which so far has really received the most severe punishment as a result for not cooperating uh, with the committee in the sense that he was charged with contempt of Congress. Obviously, that process has to play itself out through the judicial system as to whether or not he will be uh, 
held to account to those charges, uh, whether or not he will face uh, any fines or, or jail time. But uh, just the stain of, of that contempt of Congress charge uh, is really the stiffest penalty that's been imposed uh, through the committee and through the House of Representatives. And of course, now the committee is threatening uh, potential contempt charges to other individuals who have been uh, less than cooperative with their probe, uh, including uh, what former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. Uh, they've also been trying to get more cooperation from a former DOJ official, uh, Jeffrey Clark. So uh, while they are trying to still work with those individuals, uh, they aren't ruling out uh, taking uh, stiffer action further down the road. How would you characterize Steve Bannon's behavior earlier this week when he turned himself in? Well, you could see from the time that he stepped out of uh, his vehicle that he played to the cameras. It almost seemed as if he had an entourage with him, that he had his own camera crew, uh, so much so even our own camera crews were blocked from getting a shot of him going into court. And, uh, you know, before he did walk into court, he turned around to uh, the camera that was shooting him and, uh, you know, kind of spouted off these guests uh, and, you know, some topics that he was going to be talking about on his podcast. And, uh, you know, he talked about uh, this whole uh, instance of of his cases is all noise and uh, not signal. And so it was hard to understand exactly what he meant by that. But um, after uh, the court hearing, he and his lawyer did uh, address reporters and continue to make the argument that we have heard uh, for some time, which is that uh, they still continue to believe that Steve Bannon should be protected by executive privilege, even though he is a former White House official and employee, has not worked for the White House since 2017. But they continue to insist uh, that he uh, it has been instructed more or less uh, not to uh, cooperate with this probe because of uh, executive privilege. So uh, that is the argument that his team continues to make. Uh, There have been uh, subsequent uh, court uh, hearings uh, since that initial appearance on Monday. We know Steve Bannon, of course, has pleaded not guilty to the charges of contempt uh, that he faces. And so as of now, uh, our latest understanding is that uh, he and his lawyers uh, will convene again for another status hearing in early December. You know, Mark Meadows may have a more legitimate case for executive privilege, given that he served in the Trump administration as the chief of staff until the very end and through January 6th. Uh, So what do you think the committee ultimately is going to do with him? Well, I think that's why you're seeing the committee take a little more time and a little more deliberation in terms of deciding how they move forward. Because to your point, uh, Mark Meadows was uh, the chief of staff at the time of uh, the insurrection. And uh, certainly the committee wants to know a lot from Mark Meadows, uh, namely the types of conversations that he was having with the former president, uh, not only in the run up to January 6th, but actually on that day itself, because they believe that he was, in fact, with the former president. And they really, uh, more specifically, want to get at some of these uh, text messages that he may have uh, sent on that day if he was using his 
personal phone uh, on that day. So those are some of the things that they uh, want to glean and learn more from uh, Mark Meadows. We do know from some committee members that they have continued to engage uh, Mark Meadows' attorney and his team. Uh, But unlike Steve Bannon, where they move very swiftly to go forward with a contempt report, in this instance with Mark Meadows, we thought that may happen this week, but it appears they may be uh, deliberating a little bit more. Certainly some members do feel that he should be held to account if he's not complying with the committee. They feel that this case with Steve Bannon is an example to show other witnesses out there that this committee does mean business, that they will take further action against individuals who don't comply. So that threat of contempt still lingers for Mark Meadows. uh, But again, the committee seems to be moving a little more with a, a little more deliberation on this one. All right, still a lot to come from this January 6th congressional uh, investigation. So how do you expect uh, this to wrap up? Will there be a final report? Will there be hearings? I mean, where does this go next after they, you know, solve all these problems in terms of who's cooperating and who is not cooperating? Well, so far, the only hearing the committee has had, the only public hearing they've had was that initial one back over the summer with the uh, police officers, two from the U.S. Capitol Police and two from the Metropolitan Police Department here in Washington. And so it's unclear if they will hold additional hearings. They have indicated that they may or they uh, would, would like to, but we do know that they are working toward some type of comprehensive report as sometime next year. That timetable uh, is still unclear in terms of whether that will come down early in the year or or later next year, but that is what they're working towards. In the more immediate uh, near term, what we're watching is that the committee has issued a number of subpoenas for additional former White House officials, including former White House Press Secretary Kaylee McEnany and former White House Advisor Stephen Miller, uh, former Vice President Mike Pence's a national security advisor. So there are some deadlines coming up for those individuals in the next couple of weeks in order in terms of turning over documents and also in terms of sitting for depositions. So we will be watching that closely to see if those officials uh, cooperate. Uh, Some other officials who have been subpoenaed also include some of the former president's campaign officials, one of his former campaign managers, Bill Stepien, one of his former uh, spokespersons and advisors, uh, Jason Miller. So those are our individuals we're watching going forward to also see whether they comply, whether they cooperate with the committee, or whether uh, they don't and the committee starts to move down that path of trying to take further action. Furthermore, you also have a hearing coming up at the end of November, and this will be about this trove of documents from the National Archives, uh, which uh, has been a really a source of contention between the former president and the committee. Uh, you know, the former president uh, wants to block the release of these documents. It's about 700 documents, includes call logs, visitor logs, speech drafts, memos. Uh, and so the Biden administration has made pretty clear that they're okay with these documents being released. They don't think that executive privilege is justified uh, given the gravity of what happened on January 6th, but the former president is arguing otherwise. So there will be uh, a major hearing coming up at the end of November related to that case. So those are the two big things to watch going forward. All right. Look forward to that in your reporting. Nicole Killian, CBS News congressional correspondent. Thank you. You bet. Matt Miller, former DOJ spokesperson during the Obama administration, he served under Attorney General Eric Holder. 
Matt, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. All right. So based on what you saw this week with Steve Bannon appearing in court, uh, you've been at the highest level of, of the Department of Justice. What kind of thought process goes into making that kind of a decision by an attorney general? You know, I think this case is actually um, a lot simpler than people have made it out to be. And I say that after having read the indictment. Steve Bannon has tried to make this a case about executive privilege, which does cause some complicated problems for for the department. I mean, the, the, the department has taken a historically a pretty aggressive view of the president's ability to assert executive privilege. Um, and if, if this were a, a clean case of a former White House advisor who was an advisor at the time covered by the subpoena, um, refusing to answer questions about conversations with the president, I think it would have been a real a, a, a much more difficult call for the department. Um, but the way Bannon handled it, not showing up at all, not saying I will answer questions about some things that have nothing to do with conversations with the president, um, but withhold information about things over which the president has asserted privilege. If he had done that, it would have made it more complicated. But because he just blew the committee off entirely, I think it made it pretty easy for the department, starting with the U.S. Attorney's Office, but uh, going all the way up to the Attorney General, um, to say this is just a, a clean-cut case that we can prosecute uh, without getting fully into the the more complicated, legally tricky questions around executive privilege. But isn't that? I mean, based on his performance going into the courthouse, um, isn't this what? Steve Bannon wanted. He he wants a show. He wants an audience. Clearly, no. I think I think he does want to show, and he wants an audience. Look, the thing he wants most is relevance. Um, he wants to be a relevant player in the MAGA universe and um, insinuate himself as close to the former president as he can. And that's what he's wanted basically since he got thrown out of the White House in 2017. And this is a way for him to do that. Um, but just because Steve Bannon wants this doesn't mean that the department should shy away from doing it. Um, they still have an obligation, number one, to enforce the law. Uh, and I think they have a, 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 an especially high obligation in this case to send a message to other witnesses that um, defiance of lawful subpoenas will not be tolerated and, and it'll be prosecuted. I, I think this prosecution is about much more than Steve Bannon. It's about all the other witnesses who have been subpoenaed by the committee who are trying to, trying to make their own calculations about whether they cooperate or whether they stonewall. Yeah, but there's no way, I mean, right now on the radar in terms of uh, whether they're going to cooperate or not is is Mark Meadows, former chief of staff. I, I don't foresee the Department of Justice treating Meadows like, or even Congress treating Meadows like it did Bannon. Yeah, look, Meadows has been much smarter in the way he's approached this. Um, he hired an experienced attorney who knows how the department works and knows executive privilege issues well. He's engaged in some back and forth with the committee. We don't know the details of, of whether he's offered to testify about some things and, and walled others off, but but he's at least gone through the back and forth process that courts want you to do in these types of cases. And if it if it if if Congress does refer him for contempt, it will because of all that because he was not just in the White House at the time, but the most senior staffer around at the White House, it would make a call much harder for the department about whether to prosecute. 
But I think we lose sight of the fact that that witnesses from inside the administration are not the only ones that the committee has subpoenaed. Yes, they've subpoenaed Mark Meadows and Stephen Miller and other people who are in the White House who might have credible executive privilege claims. Although I, I think ultimately those claims could be defeated in court, but the prosecuting is a somewhat different question. But the committee has also subpoenaed Bill Stepien, the president's campaign manager, Jason Miller, someone who worked for his campaign, John Eastman, an outside advisor, Michael Flynn, who, uh, like Bannon, hasn't worked for the White House since 2017. Um, so there are a lot of other witnesses who are in a similar situation to Bannon in that they have very weak if executive privilege claims, if they have them at all. And so I think the, the prosecution, it, while it may not cause Mark Meadows to come in and testify, if you're one of those other witnesses, you have to think long and hard about blowing the committee off if it means having to tangle with DOJ. Let's talk about DOJ and based on your experience working in a uh, former uh, Democratic administration, working for Eric Holder, how would you grade Attorney General Merrick Garland? There are a lot of progressives who aren't happy with what he has done thus far. You know, what what I'd say first of all before getting to the grade is that it if if the base of a political party is happy with your job as attorney general, it probably means you're being a bit of a hack. Um, look, the base of, of the Democratic Party has never been happy with um, the sitting attorney general. Eric Holder went through this very same thing with, that, that we heard from Democrats who are unhappy with us for a number of things that they thought we should do that we just didn't think the law supported, even if we supported the policy ideas. Um, Typically, you know, Bill Barr was loved by the base of the Republican Party, but that's because, in my view, he was not operating in the way an attorney general should. So uh, you can't interpret an attorney general's tenure through the the most fervent beliefs of, of one political party. That said, I, I will think I, I think he has done a tremendous job at um, achieving his number one priority coming in, and that was to reestablish the department as a place that operates independent of the White House, um, that doesn't um, take political um, opinions or political pressure into account when making decisions, and really kind of restore the integrity and the credibility of the department after four years when it was really suffered. Uh, I think he's done a great job of that. Um, and look, he's going to take, that doesn't mean his decisions aren't going to be questioned. He's not going to be criticized. But I, I think I think he's operated with real integrity. And, and that was the most important job bar none. I think where he's still growing is he is still getting used to being a public figure and the face of DOJ and having to enter into the political back and forth. And I don't mean partisan back and forth, but going out and defending the department's work against critics. Um, that That's still, I think, a bit of a learning curve for him. But that is also something that takes time for attorneys general to get used to. Yeah. Do you just avoid those kinds of discussions and just keep your head down and plow plowing ahead, following the law? Well, you can't avoid them. I mean, that's what everyone wants to do. But if you avoid uh, criticism, uh, let me put it this way. You have to avoid political criticism when making decisions. Um, you have to do what you think is right and what the law calls for and not worry about whether people are going to criticize you for it. But when they do criticize you, you have to be willing to defend yourself. You have to be willing to defend the department's work. And at times you have to be willing to throw a little punch back. And you know, when you go up to the Hill and you're getting criticism 
that is completely unmoored from reality and is based really comes from a, a partisan uh, point of view. Um, I think you have to be willing to give as good as you get, and he, he that that that's not his style, and it may never be his style, but it is um, uh, for better or for worse. I think one of the requirements of being AG in, in the modern era. How, when you're working with an attorney general, you know, when you look at your time back at DOJ, what stands out the most to you? Uh, you know, not, not only uh, the positive memories, but, but what did you learn about that job that stands out the most? Um, how lonely a position it is, uh, almost uniquely so inside the executive branch. Look, when when the labor secretary is having problems, um, the White House can help him or her out. Uh, same with the defense secretary, the secretary of state, in, anyone else. When the attorney general um, hits a rocky patch, um, it, it's tough because oftentimes you're by yourself and you operate independently of the White House. Uh, on enforcement matters, and you can't consult them. And at times, you're going to do things that make them unhappy. And that can be very tough, and it can be very isolating. And it takes real fortitude, it takes real judgment. um, And uh, it means doing things that are unpopular and just living with the consequences sometimes. And making people inside your own party and inside your own administration unhappy with you um, and you just have to, to do that and know that um, if you've made the decisions consistent with how you read the law and how you how you apply the facts and from a place of integrity, you have to just hope that it'll eventually work out. Well, I appreciate your insight. Um, that was valuable, what you just relayed to the listeners and as someone who covers the Department of Justice, you know, that kind of analysis really gives a kind of uh, insight that you don't often get about uh, the attorney general in that job in any administration. Yeah. Matt Miller, thank you. Thanks for having me. Joining us now is Michael Cohen, the former personal attorney or former President Trump. Before we move on, we do want to say that we did reach out to both the Bannon and Trump legal teams with the transcripts from our interview with Michael Cohen to get their reaction and For them to give their side of the story, we did not hear back, though, from either by airtime. Michael, thanks for being with us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Jeff. So, first, I want to talk about you. So, what is going on? How are you doing? When is the home confinement coming to an end? Uh, I am done uh, Sunday night. Uh, Monday, first thing in the morning, I will be taking myself down to 500 Pearl Street, where I will be bringing my release papers uh, to, I'm not 100% sure which floor, uh, having them executed, and then I am released. All right, well, the timing is good. I'm sure not soon enough for you, but at least... It comes before Thanksgiving. Yeah, let's not forget about the three previous Thanksgivings, <laughs> right? I mean, you know, this has not been a short stint, uh, even in home confinement for me. Uh, I will have now served my time, which was a three-year sentence by Judge Pauly. Um, we can go into, I have no idea how he came up with that sentence, but um, 
I've now been on home confinement for 18 months. Uh, so, you know, when people say to me, oh, my God, three days, it's you're so close. Yeah, yeah, I am extremely close and I am extremely thankful that I will be able to celebrate Thanksgiving out of my home, out of my apartment here in the city with um, my entire family. Um, but I have done 18 months in home confinement, which is very difficult. Now, interestingly enough, very much like in prison when I was in Otisville for the 13 and a half months, the most important thing is that you actually keep yourself busy, that you schedule yourself. And while I'm entitled to go out two hours a day to walk around the park or you know, in that general vicinity, uh, I also spent an hour a day um, in the gym. But more than that, it's how do you then deal with the 22 hours, you know, um, the 21 hours that you have remaining um, basically confined to the, conf you know, to the four walls of your apartment. And the way that I did it is, you know, I created a podcast, uh, Mea Culpa, which by coincidence happens to be a top three um, percent podcast on all Apple News podcasts. That we, I mean, we're doing like crazy numbers, 1.3 million downloads. So that was one. Of course, finishing my book, Disloyal, which turned out to be a number one New York Times bestseller for a month. Uh, I mean, we sold about a million copies, give or take. Uh, and working on a second book, um, which I'm going to call The Department of Injustice, that really does a forensic dissection. And I'm just trying to keep and then doing, you know, podcasts or live streaming events uh, like yours, you know, media events, uh, media appearances. I'm just trying to keep myself busy uh, until I'm free to really start my life all over again. Well, let's let's talk about and and just so the listeners know, you and I go back years now uh, because of your association with the former president. Um, let, let me ask you this. Remind our listeners, what were the charges that uh, ended up uh, landing you in home confinement and Otisville, for that matter? So there were five counts of what Judge Pauly, uh, well, I pled guilty to, was five counts of tax evasion, which never happened. Um, there was one count of campaign finance violation as it related to Stormy Daniels, which, of course, as I had stated, was done at the direction of and for the benefit of Donald J. Trump. There was one count of campaign finance violation for his affair with Karen McDougal, another scenario that I got no benefit out of um, in any respect. Uh, I'm certainly not the one that was having the affair on my wife. Uh, and then there was one count of lying to Congress. Uh, oh, there was a misrepresentation count based upon a HELOC violation, which is a home equity line of credit. Another absolute nonsensical um, charge that they threw at me um, at the very and they threw it at me with the full force and the full weight of the Southern District of New York, this Tom McKay, this Nick Roos, Andrea Griswold, Jeffrey Berman, 
you know, um, Robert Kazami, all of them. Now, it's interesting is that they all went on to like seven figure white glove firms, uh, whereas, uh, well, there's actually two that stayed or three, but out of the eight, five of them end up. And yet I pled guilty to a one page information. It wasn't even a case. I was given 48 hours to either plead guilty or they were filing an 85 page indictment against me that was going to include my wife. Now, I'm married now 27 years with the same woman for 29 years, and there was not a chance in the world that I was going to put her at risk. And even my attorney at the time said, who was legitimately once wore the big boy pants there, he was the head of the criminal division for the Southern District of New York. He says, I've never seen anything like this. Um, they're going to go after after your wife as well. So I wasn't going to take any chance with her or her freedom. Um, and so I did what they did. I read the allocution that they prepared for me. And um, they are riding me, as I stated, door to door. Not a second, not a minute, not a day off of the sentence, despite the 400 plus hours of cooperation and testimony that I provided to more than nine law enforcement agencies, including what we have now going on in New York with the district attorney and the attorney general. Now, I want to be very clear. I know what I did wrong. I did not do wrong on all of the charges, but there were charges like the campaign finance violation. There was no reason for me to do it, despite the fact that he asked me. There was no reason for me to lie to Congress, even though we all thought it was a minimal, de minimis type of a lie. Uh, it was what it was. And I knew that they had me. And so all the additional charges, I had no choice. It was either a take it or leave it scenario. Now, I would like them to do the same thing, by the way, to Alan Weisselberg. I'd like them to do the same thing to Steve Bannon. I'd like them to do the same thing to Rudy Giuliani and everybody else. I think if you compare your case to the, the lack of accountability in some of the other cases, that the American public has seen where you're looking at the facts and you're thinking, oh my goodness, why hasn't anybody else been held accountable here? I can see why you're a little bitter or upset that you seem to be the one who, in terms of time in custody, yeah, has am, paid the biggest perturbed. price. I am perturbed. And I'm also disappointed in the lack of accountability that all of these other individuals are being held to. Um, I mean, let's not forget that the charge that was levied against me against, we'll just talk about Stormy Daniels for a moment. There were a whole slew of sealed indictments at the Southern District of New York's office. And at some point, they made a determination that they were not going to act on any of those sealed indictments simply because that there wasn't enough evidence that the Southern District felt that they could bring against others that would create a criminal case. So it blows my mind that I am the only one to be held accountable for another man's affair. Why? Because I paid it? It wasn't stolen money. It was my money. And I did it at the direction of and for the benefit of Donald J. Trump. All right. Well, listen, let's look ahead. Monday is going to be a big day for you. Um, I know you're looking forward to uh, 
turning the page and spending a nice holiday with your family. But I, I want to talk about what's going on with Steve Bannon, what's going on with former President Trump. You know, there is something about former President Trump where people tend to shield him, follow his orders, no matter the legal jeopardy that it puts them in. Did you see Steve Bannon go into the courthouse earlier this week and how he was reacting? It was like he was, you know, he was speaking to his audience. He was taping a reality show, you know, and, and wasn't didn't seem too concerned about the charges that he was facing. What What was your take on what you saw? Well, first of all, Steve Bannon's attorneys told him what the downside is to his contempt charge. Um, actually, I should say charges. One, of course, is failing to appear. The other is failing to produce documents. And basically what it is, is it is up to a month in, in jail along with a fine. And some people say that the fine is $1,000. Others say that the fine is $100,000 maximum. I'm not sure which one it's, is, is accurate. Either way, it doesn't matter. Because if it's 100000 not that Steve Bannon doesn't have the money, he does. But even if he didn't have the money, they have enough support for people they could fundraise that in a half an hour, if not less. So he's already looking at what's his downside. Well, we know the downside is one month plus this fine. What's the upside for him? The upside is that he stays in the good grace of his supreme leader. And he's able to then grift off of it, whether it's for his own fundraising purpose, for his own radio show, or for some political benefit that he thinks he's going to get by staying true and loyal to a man who doesn't understand the term loyalty. For Donald, loyalty is like First Avenue. It's one way and only one way. And he doesn't care. Who gets run over by the bus? Not whether it's Steve Bannon, certainly not if it's Michael Cohen, certainly not if it's his own children, as long as it's not him. And this is kind of what I want to dig into a little bit more. This, this idea that there are a lot of people making money off of backing former President Trump. You know, there's a whole industry and, you know, some people might say, well, what about Michael Cohen? They might say, well, he's got his podcast, he's got his books, but you're doing it in a different way. You're take, you're sort of taking on former President Trump. But there is a cottage industry on the right that I think people don't talk about enough that just goes on radio, goes on television and says incendiary, they say incendiary things. They, they know what the truth is. But they do it anyway because they know they can make money that way. Yeah, that's that's true. Now, first of all, I just want to correct something that you just said. I am not, I am not doing this in terms of taking on Trump. This is not a David and Goliath battle. All right. I am only telling the truth. And if the truth is not in the benefit of Donald Trump, so be it. Tough, right? Um, this is not an animus towards him as an individual or as, um, you know, as a Republican, being that I've been a Democrat my whole life. That's not what this is about. I ended up, in essence, serving time because Donald Trump cast me 
as a convicted liar. And I want your audience to understand what my lie was to Congress. The lie was the number of times that I spoke to Donald Trump about the failed Moscow real estate project. I stated to Congress that it was three times over a period of like three months, when in fact it was 10 times over a period of seven months. That's the big lie. Now, the fact of the matter is what Donald and the Republicans do, and they do it very, very well, is that they come up with these monikers, right? Lion Ted, um, Low Energy Jeb, uh, Little Marco, and Convicted Liar Cohen, right? These are the things that they do. And somehow or another, because it's, it's said so many times, whether it's through print media, through television, or you know Donald just doing it on his Twitter when he had it, it, it sticks. And I want people to understand my big lie was the number of times that I spoke to Donald about this Russian relationship that we were working on for a hotel condominium tower in Moscow. That's what it's about. Honestly, and I think I'm going to regret saying this, but I could talk to you for hours, for hours. You, you know, the, the, the fact of the matter is, if people look back at your congressional testimony, you did foreshadow some of what has happened. In other words, you know, you were the one who told people early on that uh, there will not be a smooth transition. if. President Trump at the time loses re-election. You said that. I did. Over three years ago, I said that if Donald Trump loses the election, that there will never be a peaceful transfer of power. And people to this day, of course, they give me the credit for it because it's true. It was done on television before like 100 million people. But I turned around and I said it because I know the animal that's name is Donald. I know exactly what he's thinking because I was around him enough, unfortunately, to understand him. It's almost like I graduated valedictorian from Trump University. And I know his fragile ego. I know that if he loses, that he will always blame somebody else because nothing is ever his fault. It's always somebody else's. And when I knew that he was not going to or potentially was going to lose the re-election because his administration was just so pathetic in terms and accomplished nothing, I knew that he would not leave peacefully because Donald never wanted to be president in the first place. When he won the election, for him, it was more, I'm winning a monarch seat, an, an autocrat, a, dictor a dictatorial seat. I want to be the dictator, the monarch. I want to be the Kim Jong-un of America or the Vladimir Putin of America. And that's why he was attack attacking consistently the electoral process, because he remembers that there was a saying once that was repeated. He would repeat it quite often in the office, which is Putin's language. It doesn't matter who you vote for. All that matters is who's counting the vote. So his feeling is if he could control who's counting the vote, and of course, like Putin, he gets 92% of the vote, well, he stays president or dictator forever. It's, you know, as someone who was at the Capitol on January 6th, it's still hard to believe that that happened.
Michael Cohen, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, and this is on a lighter note, but what was the deal with you and Kanye West? You know, you, you talk about your home confinement, but you did experience some things that most people don't get to experience when they're in custody. So you had lunch with Kanye West, who wore some sort of costume. First of all, what were you talking about? Okay, so first, it wasn't once, it was twice. Oh, The first time, he did not wear the mask. The second time, he did put on the mask. Oh. And he put on the mask. He put on the mask as a goof because every time that we would sit down and I would go over to my favorite coffee place as I'm heading to walk to the park. Um, I like to, you know, that's what I do. I walk the park. Um, I picked up a cup of coffee and we decided to sit down every time that he got there within a second. There was already a crowd of people. They were wanting to come say hello, to take photos. And we had some things to talk about. There are things that he's asked me to assist him with. Is it running for president? Does he want your backing running for president? I am assisting him. I won't discuss what it is. Um, I will tell you one thing. He is completely underestimated as um, as an individual. Uh, the man is really incredibly popular. I mean, just the number of people that came over in a split second. And so what he did is he put on the mask, then he put on a pair of sunglasses and a hat over it. It was it was a little odd, but he was doing it so that new people wouldn't recognize him after we got rid of the old people. But he's a very, very bright guy. He's really creative and he thinks so far out of the box that you know, it takes me a couple of a couple of minutes to try to actually fully understand what it is that his ultimate goal is. I mean, he's really a very interesting person and a very forward thinker. All right. Somehow during this broadcast today, we've gone from talking about January 6th to talking about Steve Bannon to talking about former President Trump to talking about Kanye West, and we'll end it there. But hope to have you on soon. You know that's that's what happens. That's what happens. That's what happens when you get stir crazy sitting twenty one hours in an apartment. Uh, well, you do take your breaks and walk through the park. I mean, you know, we we can talk more about the home confinement later once you get out. So, listen, I appreciate your time. Well, and I appreciate you, and I appreciate our long, long friendship. Um, and, um, what I really appreciate the opportunity to join you on your show and look forward to doing some more things with you down the road. That'd be great. Michael Cohen. Thank you. That is it for this week's America change forever. You can download previous episodes wherever you download your podcasts. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at Jeff Begay's CBS, where you can send program ideas. What do you want us to look into and follow me on Instagram at Jeff Begay's 6. My thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. I'm Jeff Begay's, and that is how America changed forever. Hey, Prime members. You can listen to America Changed Forever ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey 
at wondery.com/survey.